going on around during Fram? We've got my friend, Ali Myatt. And I say everybody's my friend, but it's true. Folks I'm bringing my podcast right now are people I consider fam. So got another friend on the mic coming up, Ali Myatt. And she is the CEO and co-founder of The Equity Practice. So you'll listen in, hear what she talks about in terms of why she built it. But the line I want to plant for y'all is that in order to do equity work, you'll hear Ali talk more about it. You got to slow down. You don't slow down, you don't notice, and you can't redesign and, you know, help people rediscover their humanity. So I met Ali through her world of Teacher America. She reached out and started chatting, really hit up a, just an amazing relationship. So really grateful for you to hear Ali's wisdom. Check it out. Welcome, everyone. It's Ron Rapitalo, the host of the Ronderings podcast. And I have my friend, fellow TFA friend and equity co-conspirator and just magician of all things, Ali Myatt. What's <laughs> up, Ali? Hi, Ron. It's so nice to be with you. It's nice to be with you, too. You know, I'm trying to remember exactly how we met. It must have been through our Teach for America circles. Yes. I'm trying to place the that and or Edlock. That's where I think I get murky. I wanted to yes. look before this call, like, what was the first moment we I met? Remember. I remember. Oh. Um, so Teach for America was going through a contraction and I got laid off. Wait, wait. Oh, word? I know. Oh, I know. Look at that. Oh, oops. Might be, too, <laughs> might be too soon. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> but back in 2016, I was trying to figure out what was next. And TFA, one thing that, one of many things, TFA does a lot of great things. Like, I'm so grateful for all the people that I've met through the organization. Does a word phenomenal up. job of finding great people. And also really supports people, at least in my experience, well during the layoffs. And so um, I think someone was like, you need to talk to Ron. Ron knows everybody. And so we... <laughs> I've heard that rep on the street. Is that true, Bobby? That's what I heard. That's what I, and that's what I tell people. I'm like, you need to talk to Ron. Ron knows everybody. And he'll be able to help you. Um, and so I think we just had a conversation that was, was really great and helpful. And yeah, I was like, oh, we're, we're friends now. You don't get to get rid of me. <laughs> so. Well, we've had many a good time when we've been Edlock convenings together. Mm -hmm. Shout out to your friends at the Education Leaders of Color Network organization. I'm just grateful to, to have you on this space because I've been dying to like have a extended remix conversation that gets recorded from all the great combos we've yeah. had, both in person, Zoom, phone, messenger pigeon. So. <laughs> I love it. So, Allie. What's your story? Yeah, I mean, this is a big question. What's your story? But I grew up in Houston in predominantly white communities and have lived in predominantly white communities, gone to predominantly white schools, worked in predominantly white organizations my entire life. And so what that meant for me was that I was very aware of what it means to be an other in space and what it meant to have to try and navigate and connect to other people who were different than me. My mom grew up in Detroit. She's from Jackson, Mississippi originally. And my dad grew mm. up in Indiana. My mom went to predominantly white. She went to Catholic school. <laughs> so okay. she knew what it was like to be a black girl and one of not many black girls in her classroom and have teachers who 
were not supportive. I know a lot of times people tell stories of teachers who were really supportive. I didn't have that experience. I have the opposite. I have a lot of memories of the opposite. Mm. And so my mom taught me how to advocate for myself, how to not accept that. And my dad did too. He he went to black schools, but he worked at Shell when I was growing up. Okay. And so he was like an exec in this very white organization. And he was very, very focused at helping black people, in particular black students. I think he was in Big Brothers and Big Sisters growing up. Ah, okay. Okay. And he wanted to help students get into these organizations. So he was very, very, like he would tell me, you need to do this, 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 and this, especially once I started working. He, he was very big on like, make sure you have a black suit, a boring black suit with the right length and all that stuff so you can get a job. But that I feel like they helped me figure out how to like navigate the world. And like what I learned as a kid is what I think inspired me to do the work that I'm doing now. So that's sort of like kind of where my story started and how I got into all of this. Well, tell us a little bit, Ali, about how you use the foundation of what you learned from your parents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who seem to be without maybe using the term very equity centered and making sure you had the foundations for you to do what you've been building. Mm-hmm. How did you use the their values and examples to move through your career and your life? <laughs> My parents are like, I think some people are like very about kumbaya and like, Martin Luther King and like love and all that stuff. My parents were not, they're loving, Mm. but they were not about teaching me that. They were like, you're not, that's not okay. (laughs) You're not going to teach, treat our child that way. Like one of my earlier memories was, and when I was growing up in elementary school, there was a rule that if you got like a 99, which is like a perfect score, two grading periods in a row, you could be placed in and you tested high, you could be placed in gifted and talented. And so I did that. I like tested, had the highest math score and had like 99s every single time. So my parents This is why we're friends. I could see we have a very similar (laughs) parallel trajectory getting 99s on exams. Right. And so, and like I'm getting perfect (laughs) scores and I'm like outperforming everyone in the grade. And so they're like, so she needs to go and gifted and calendared, right? And they were like, the, the teacher said, no, we don't think she can handle it. What? I know. And that was like, and I, there's at least three instances of that happening in, in my schooling. So my parents would come up there and be like, absolutely not. <laughs> like my mom tells the story of like, well, let her try. Let's see if she can actually do it. And if she fails, that's okay. She'll go back. But like, let's put her in gifted and talented and see what happens, which, you know, it's just funny. It's like one of those things of when we talk about equity at work, for example, a lot of times people have, there's the expectations of the role and then there's additional expectations that some people mm-hmm. have, right? So like yeah. some people get to show up and just do their work and just work, worry about the like on paper expectations. And then the rest of us, you know, people of color, women, people with other marginalized identities have to show up and there's all these extra things and extra hurdles that we have to hit that like no one actually tells us what they are. And they're, mm-hmm. it's like the rules keep shifting, right? So I think like what that experience and those experiences and what my parents taught me was like to see these rules, right? Like that's what I mm-hmm. think I'm able to do in my work now is I'm able to see the extra rules, the extra hurdles. 
and how our behaviors and actions and policies and practices are leading to inequities for people of color in particular. Ali, I know you and I have talked about this all the time and with previous podcast guests, whether our homegirl, Evie Walker, our fellow Edlock homegirl, Judith Yanez. I mean, there's several folks who've talked about this theme of like the unwritten rules. Mm -hmm. Can you share with the audience, particularly for folks who don't share your lived experience as a Black woman, what are some of the unwritten rules you learned as a kid? Right. Whether it's that gift and talented example or other ones. Let's elevate those things. Let's just name it. Yeah. I think I learned them. My parents made me like very combative. (laughs) So I would like probably wasn't as aware aware of the unwritten rules as a kid. I was like, like, I remember my mom told me, if you ever have to go to the bathroom, just go. You don't have to ask Mm. permission. So I never asked. And I would just go to the bathroom. And I don't recall getting in trouble. But (laughs) I think it was just my personality. There were a lot of, Mm. I have a lot of memories of that. Like, I would argue every day with my English teacher. Every Mm. day. Mm. In class, taking up class discussion time about the fact that we kept reading white, like all we read were white men. And I was like, this is ridiculous. There's all these other people and all these other stories. And I don't think we should just be reading these. And I would argue every day. And then I went to the school board and argued. And then when I was a senior, they let me read what I wanted to, (laughs) which I just don't even know. It's just like a weird memory. I'm like, how did I get away with that? But I just kind of did. But what I think I learned about that was the unwritten rule of power, right? Mm. Like a lot of ways that we are subjugated are internalized, right? We keep ourselves in line. And so because I learned that, that's an unwritten rule that they don't want you to know, is that a lot of times the power is like a, it's like a sandcastle and it's so easy to knock down. All you have to do is not comply, right? Mm. But like some of the unwritten rules that I think about in my professional life are like, you know, you have to be fun but not too fun. So like people don't like when you're too serious or like focused on the work or not smiling enough. But if you are smiling and having fun, then you're not smart. So you're kind of Mm. hemmed in. Yes. In these double binds, like what do you do with that? How do you find the perfect amount of smile? (laughs) Like, you know, and I don't know. One that like popped up a lot in my that I rejected was like my facial expressions. I have you can read everything on that I'm thinking on my face, and that includes when I disapprove. <laughs> it's like I yeah. don't hide that, and I used to get so many so much feedback about my face, and I was like, you know what? I think it was in my 30s when I was like, I am not going to worry about that. <laughs> that I'm just gonna. And I would tell my managers, you can stop giving me feedback about my face. Well, it's about policing your body, yeah, ultimately, right? 100%. Policing behavior. That's, you know, when you think about that level of feedback that particularly is given to women of color, black women yeah. in particular, right? Where it's just like, I'll say this unapologetically if you don't do dumb shit, I want to fucking react like that. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, let's just give it like, don't do dumb shit. Like, right. why don't you have the fucking self awareness? Right to not do dumb shit. And then I right. would have facial expressions that look at you like a word. Right. Like you're asking me to be the bearer of all this stuff and like smile at you or like be yeah. able to be zen the whole time. Like it's just. And what's wrong with having a reaction to something? Like I'm a full human. 
with a Thank full you. range of emotions. You are. And I'm allowed to not like what you said, just like you're allowed to not like what I said or to be thinking like I furrow my brow and some people will think I'm upset and I'm just thinking and you know, my face is going to do what it's, I have no idea what my face is doing unless I'm on a, a zoom or something. Um, yeah. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, my face is doing a lot. Okay, I don't even know how you control it. And you're trying to think about engaging in the work and now you have to worry about your face too, you know, and your body and your hair and all these other silly things that white men in particular, they don't have to worry about that stuff. They can show up and look however and make- Or say whatever and do yeah. verbal diarrhea and it's right. thought as gospel. Right. <laughs> or or yeah. just read the words that are on a page right. and that being taken is like, well, you must be saying something brilliant. Like, right. no, you just, you just read out loud. Word? Right. That's or it? Yeah. Like I've worked with people who, who yell, you know? I could never raise my voice. And what's interesting is like, I have, when I'm angry, my voice slows down. I get very articulate. It's like a staccato. <laughs> the mm -hmm. words are very precise, but I slow down. I try and speak in a very monotone. And still, you would think I was burning down the house. Yeah. And I remember at my last job when I felt like I was being demeaned and undervalued. I said that. I said, this is making me feel undervalued. And the feedback I got was that I was abusive, combative, threatening, all these like angry black women things. Hashtag gaslighting? What right. the? I know. I'm what? like, oh my gosh, like, I cannot believe oh. this. And like, oh, Allie. But, gosh. you know, it's that kind of stuff that I think are like a lot of the inner, unwritten worlds for black women. At least what I've experienced is like all this, like how you are just, just existing versus all the feedback, I would say 95% of the feedback I've gotten at work has been about my existence and not about my work. I rarely would get feedback about my work. And that's, you know, supported by research that women and people of color often don't get developmental feedback. Mm. The feedback we get is about how we're, you know, taking up space and the way that we're taking up space, you know, so... Mm. I mean, we could spend the rest of our podcast time <laughs> on that. I know, I feel like I just went on a ride. <laughs> you know, we're only like 15 minutes in, folks. So I'm just like, damn, we just went, went deep. Like, oh, damn, this is what they're talking about this episode? Ooh, I might need to pause this and go get a drink. So, Alan, let me, let me fast forward to what you do today, right? Because I think it sounds like a lot of what you've learned and built towards is to dismantle those unwritten implicit rules mm -hmm. and build new rules. So mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about your, your, your current work and your company. Yeah. Thanks for um, prompting me to do that. I founded the equity practice about three yes. years ago. And in fact, it was almost exactly three years ago on Juneteenth. Um, I took a class with the op-ed project in 2020. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Nice. I was, the I'll never forget the despair of the moment three years ago when we were dealing with, and it wasn't the first time I felt that despair. Yeah. Police brutality or just like brutality against black people. But it definitely, like, there's moments I remember when um, Ferguson happened, was another moment that sticks out in my memory. 
I remember Rodney King. Like, if we want to go all the way back, like, I remember when Rodney King happened, all of those things. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. or even OJ, real talk. <laughs> For different reason. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the collective despair was so intense that I remember I had to stop working for probably a week and a half. I had to just like pause. And so as I was coming out of that pause, I decided I wanted to give myself this opportunity to to learn how to write an op-ed. And I thought I was going to write about pay equity, but Mm. the op-ed project helps people to sort of see their sphere of influence. Yeah. And Katie Orenstein, who started the op-ed project, tells a story about how she realized how much influence she had. And it inspired me to realize that I didn't just want to talk to the world about pay equity. I wanted to talk about equity in all practices. So therefore, Mm. the equity practice. And so what we do is we help people to identify the ways that oppression shows up in our talent practices. So recruiting, onboarding, performance management, um, how you set team norms, all of these things that we experience at work our behaviors and mindsets create inequity. And so then we help people see that and then find ways to disrupt that so that everybody can thrive at work. Yeah, my experience, I'm curious, Allie, to to dig deeper here, right? My sense is, especially in the world of disrupting inequitable practices in hiring, Mm -hmm. the folks generally know this shit exists, Mm. right? And it is harder to go from awareness acknowledgement to like disruption in action. So how yeah. does what the work you do, the equity practice, hold the mirror up and say, look, I know you know what I know and you know what I know you know. Yeah. To how do you then hold space for folks to be able to shift into one of creating something that's different, even if what they understand is something they know is inequitable to what yeah. they know, right? Yeah, and I think even though they m- believe I don't know if they always believe it, but <laughs> even if you've, you've convinced them like, yes, there's something inequitable going on. I don't know if people understand what's happening, like the steps that how their behaviors are contributing to that. And the reason I think that that's hard to do is because if you want to exist or have companies operate in a more liberatory way, you'll have to re- unlearn everything that you know about how work is done and relearn something completely new. And to do that, you have to slow down. And our mm. society does not like slowing down. And so a it lot of does times, not. right? So no. clients are like, you know, I just need to fix it. But actually you need to slow down and see, we talk about like pulling the process apart, like an accordion, you know, like stretching it out. Here are all the steps that are happening. And here's how each step might be contributing to this. So if you can slow down and sort of like, almost like going into slow motion of how things happen, then you can see what the issue is and then change that. And so I think if people, if I can get people to slow down, then there's a shot. <laughs> it's hard to yeah. get people to slow down sometimes though, because even our inbox, I don't know, like the energy this week is super weird. And in our inbox, we would have a lot of people mm. that are like, we do restorative work. In fact, I think a lot of our work, as all of our work is restorative. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Like we're disconnected. Something is broken in the ways that we do work. And what we're trying to do is help people find each other again so they can operate in a way that allows everyone to thrive. It's truly restorative. 
but someone had something happen in the organization that was great harm. That's their words, not mine. And they want a restorative thing to happen next week. And I'm like, that's not, you have to slow down. If you break a bone, (laughs) you need to like slow down, have the surgery, take the time to recover. And like, I think the more people are just so urgent are just like rushing, 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 and don't pause to be like, what's actually happening here so that we can make different choices. But you need to slow down to be able to make different choices so your brain can rewire. I don't know if that, that resonates, but like, that's slowing yeah, down. Yeah, I mean, look, I was, um, I don't think when people read my bio, they may not remember I was a neuroscience major in college. So a lot of you talk about like brain rewriting all this mm-hmm. stuff. I'm like, young, young, catch me in the streets not knowing this shit. But like what you're saying around the idea of slowing down is restoration, slowing down to really be able to have folks in space to do equity work, mm-hmm. right? Because the tension is, you know, the white supremacy norm of the power of urgency. When I think yeah. about urgency, urgency is crack. Yeah. It right? really is. Urgency, it moves. It's like, yeah. it, it gives you this drive. It's like, yeah. crypt, it's, it's like the um, red kryptonite. You know, if you think about what Superman like really reacts badly against, right? right. It's just like, ah, it's, it's just, yeah. it could be so all consuming that all you think about is, and look, Asterisk, there are moments and things in our lives that are urgent. Mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. not as if urgency is bad. Right. It's just that folks, if I think about this as music, right? right. Mm-hmm. There is a level of being able to say, I enjoy really fast, hard music at yes. times, dependent on my mood. If mm-hmm. I'm working out hard, yeah, I do want some system of a down. I might want mm-hmm. to play bombs over Baghdad. Like right. there are certain songs I know, like when those songs are going, like I'm in. But like right. I might want some jazz for other things yeah. that I do, right? When I'm doing deliberate strategy work, I need, I put tribe on. Yeah. And if you use your analogy to think about like the people in organizations are the musicians, right? Ah, bingo. And, and they're playing the fast music and you're like, hey, this fast music you're playing is causing inequity. Here's a new piece of music that you've never played before. You might even be playing a new instrument. In what world? Do you think if you've been playing clarinet and I hand you a trumpet that you think you get to go fast with a trumpet unless you're some sort of savant? So like, and you know- Not everybody's, most people are not Miles Davis. Hate to tell you, all the leaders and CEOs out there, most of y'all are just regular, regular, right? Regular, regular (laughs) folks who need to slow down and learn how to play the trumpet. So like you Mm. have to slow down to learn new behaviors. Sorry about it. And I understand that there's a lot of tensions because like urgency could be, we're trying to make payroll. We need to get this revenue in the door. And as a business owner, I get that a hundred percent. And it's like your business model is set up to go fast because we've all been taught we're supposed to go fast and scale these organizations and move fast. And so to the idea of slowing down to redesign, it's like, well, how do I know this is going to work and I'm going to, we're going to make it. But what I know is that more diverse organizations perform better. And if you are operating in inequitable ways, you can't be diverse. You just can't, they can't, you cannot, a diverse team cannot thrive if you do not rethink how you are operating. And so if you want to be able to, to get that performance, to get the benefit of all of that, and frankly, just to be, 
for me, a lot of this is less about performance and more about like my own values and what I, how I think we should treat each other in the world. Yeah. Um, so I think just to be, have your soul be good at the end of all of this, mm. if you, if you want to do that, then you might have to relearn some things and slowing down to relearn some things makes you go faster in the long run. Faster and more efficient. You can have more rest, more joy, more connection. I mean, that sounds great to me. Like these workplaces are disconnected. People are disengaged. There's a lot of anger, fear, shame, pain. What if slowing down, reckoning with what's going on, repairing that and reconnecting to each other? What if we did that and now you have a more joyful workplace? Yeah. You know, when I think about this from a time construct, right? The, 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 I think I've talked to you about this a good deal is I can't change the tempo of how the world is around me. Mm, mm-hmm. The world might be urgent, mm-hmm. but in my body, in my mm-hmm. mind, my mm-hmm. spirit, I'm slowing down. Mm-hmm. I think teaching people that practice, like this is not about saying that the urgency of what you're experiencing externally is changing. Mm-hmm. You may have less direct effect on that where you're probably going to have the effect of being able to change that over time mm-hmm. is you yourself and your body and your mind, your spirit, that inner work mm-hmm. of slowing down for self. Right. And yeah. so I think you and I've talked about this. I think there's a certain Zen of when you're holding space of being able to know when to go fast and when to go slow with people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's literally, I'm getting meta here in my mind mm-hmm. and it's coming out in the way that I talk mm-hmm. to even showing you up. I mean, this is an audio podcast, though folks should know, like, I'm always seeing people when we're recording these mm-hmm. things, right, is look at my face. It's not moving a lot, mm-hmm. right? I've, one of the things I've learned about, like, slowing down is that when I'm slowing down, you see when I'm talking fast, you see I'm moving a lot. You see mm-hmm. my band is like, yeah. when I slow down, yeah. there's less opportunity mm-hmm. for all the things that my body will naturally do to self-express, yeah, to show itself, yeah, right? And so slowing down, I think, also helps to build trust and have people be able to see like, oh, wait, here are all the things that are happening because you yeah. can control and be able to more experience and see mm-hmm. what someone is trying to share. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think mindfulness helps with this work too, because it sucks learning that the thing that you learn to do and have mastered is causing mm-hmm. inequity. Oh, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And hurting and harming people. That's not fun. And not only is it not fun, like there's a lot of shame in that, you know, as I've done my own work and seen the ways that I've participated in that and sometimes wielded power in ways that might have been harmful. That's, you know, there's some shame there, you know, but what I've learned is like, if you can slow down and be mindful, then you get out of the lizard part of your brain where you're like fight or flight, freeze or fawn. And you can actually engage in these conversations and actually hear, like you said, hear what the other person is saying and help yourself get out of the shame spiral. Because if you, I think shame is helpful. (laughs) I don't think it's necessary. It's sort of like, you know, the fact that we, when we touch the stove and it's hot and it hurts, Mm -hmm. that gives us from touching the stove again, right? And so shame is like helpful in that, like, we don't like that. So we don't do that behavior again, Um, but you don't want to stay there. And you don't want to center your shame spiral, right? If you're a person in dominant culture um, and in our organizations, often white, if you're in your shame spiral and centering your shame and discomfort with that, 
then we don't ever get to repair, right? Like, so if you can mm-hmm. be mindful and like help yourself through it, then maybe we can get to repair. And I think that a lot of these organizations are so stuck in the like shame blame thing. It's like, well, I'm feeling shame and it's your fault. Like all the anti-CRT stuff is that. Like I think parents are saying, my kids are feeling shame. Yes. The fault is not the, <laughs> the what the structures that they feel shame about, right? Like they feel shame because this, our country did some pretty racist stuff. So there's some shame there. And they know that they were white. And so they know their ancestors did some shameful things, but it's not that they, the bad thing isn't the shame. It's the, the, the practices and the behaviors, right? So like, let's change that so we can get out of shame. That's the option versus like pretending it doesn't exist. That doesn't help us. And again, you just mm. went on a ride with me. <laughs> another ride. <laughs> well, I'm loving these rides. Let's go on another ride, right? Because I think you talked about something that I hold near and dear in terms of my own inner work, which is a mindfulness practice, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, I've been meditating, shout out to my folks at Headspace and mm. doing Headspace meditation for the most part consecutively for the last seven years, right? Mm-hmm. And that's helped with a lot of my ability to stay grounded that while there's cacophony and other all kinds of stuff around me, that yeah. the ability to have my own inner work to be in the and the storm, it mm-hmm. still feel like I'm in the eye of the storm. Mm-hmm. Like there's that duality, right? So I'm curious then, Allie's relates to what work you do, the equity practice. Mm-hmm. How do you help organizations and leaders be mindful to yeah. this work, right? Because they were saying that mindfulness is a pathway to slowing down. Mm-hmm. What does that practice look like yeah. for your work? I mean, it can show up in a lot of different ways. One is when we are facilitating and say we're facilitating something where that we're, where we're talking about these patterns of oppression that show up in our work, we'll do a mindfulness practice. I will explicitly say you might be feeling anxious about that. Like even naming emotions can be really helpful for people. Folks like, don't want to be in their own head and like be able to like close their eyes and breathe. It's right. a very scary thing for a lot of people used yeah. to be the, the the rat race, right? Yeah. Or, you know, and I can't, I actually get dizzy if I close my eyes too long. Hmm. So you don't have to, there's so many different ways that you can be mindful, like a walk can be a meditation. And when I used to practice yoga, what I loved about it was like, you just so focus on your breath and like what your body is doing. You're not thinking about anything else. Um, And that's meditative, I think. Um, Because meditation, like being mindful really is, is like, how can you be where your feet are instead of in your head telling a story about what's happening? How do you just become as present as possible because it's when we go into the place of telling the story, that's where the anxiety lives. Right. And if you can bring yourself back to the moment and be like, okay, at this moment right now, I have everything that I need. I have Mm. air to breathe. I have water to drink. I have a seat to sit in. I can feel my body. I'm in my body in this moment. And I don't have to worry about what happened yesterday. I don't have to worry about what happens in the next five minutes. Right now, we have everything that we need. And I think like just talking about that. And I also think when I'm facilitating, I try and go at a slower pace. I don't, a lot of a lot of meetings, sometimes we jam things into the agenda and I try and avoid that because mm. I think it doesn't support it. It's like, how do we actually work through a problem together at a pace 
that allows people to internalize things um, and like pay attention to their emotions and their thoughts at the same time. So those are some of the things that I think about to support clients to be more mindful and more present. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have to model that creation of space, Mm -hmm. right? Is what I'm hearing from you in terms of those practices of slowing down, Mm -hmm. not saying that the agenda needs to have 75 objectives in, in like one hour, right? Um, it's also saying that it's okay if we don't get through all the objectives today yeah. because context and how people show up matter in a space. And so yeah. I think one of the things I've learned in the beauty of doing the work and my own inner work is understanding that learn, <laughs> this sounds so weird to say, but I absolutely 1 billion percent believe it is like, I don't get attached to the results as much as I used to. I'm like, mm-hmm. I've got objectives we reach it. That's great. But like, yeah. if we don't things happen. And like, we're going to be able to figure it out. Like yeah. there's a certain level of, I'm going to say it again. And my last podcast recording with Laura Donald, I, I've been quoting this with, with her and of late is letting go. Mm-hmm. Be like Elsa. Elsa was that way. First, <laughs> let, let go. Right, it's right. one of my favorite meditative phrases to say. Mm-hmm. Inhale, let exhale go mm-hmm. right this 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 mm-hmm. understanding that i think in the temperament of our lives and mm-hmm. our work that when you let go but you do the work and you let go of the result that actually a really amazing things happen yet there's so much pressure that we've mm-hmm. built towards being such a results oriented culture only the result matter that's in sports mm-hmm. that's in everything it's mm-hmm. like don't care about the process and how people show up yeah. You know, it's just, it's such a, you may have seen this, right? When Giannis lost in the first round of the NBA playoffs to the Heat, oh, he got asked see. about, was this a fit? I mean, we just went to a sports podcast if you want to, I have a lot to say about Knicks being beat by the Heat. But anyway, um, and considering the Knicks rivalry with the Heat because, you know, Riles was our coach and then sent the fact saying he left and then like his built, you know, got to give credit, credit due, like an incredible culture and level of success for the Miami. Mm, He's gotta, mm-hmm. And at the same time, Giannis said something really amazing and vulnerable it was just like, you know, what's said in sports? Like if you don't win the championship, you basically failed. Or he's like, what the fuck does oh, like, that? Yeah, yeah. Right. Because it made the rounds where it just was so universal. It just didn't stay on ESPN, the athletic and Bleacher mm-hmm. report, which are things I consume more than mm-hmm. I read anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. It started to make, I mean, how many LinkedIn posts did I see folks like, Oh, here's this video people need to see. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, because it reached at something really, I think human around, is my identity centered into the results? Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what it sounds like the, the practice that you've built is to help people unwind from their being in humanity, being attached to mm-hmm. not only the result, but their work. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that resonates a lot. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about. I don't know if you knew Omari Todd. Um, yes. I, I, yeah. I mean, rest in peace. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I actually worked, um, my first job at TFA was on Amari's cluster. Mm. And he was so about connection and um, relationships and people. I was didn't go in person to his funeral, but got to listen in on Zoom. And it was so evident in all the stories that people told about Amari 
that that's mm. what he was all about. And that's what I experienced with from him. I remember <laughs> mm. we were working with a region. I worked on the development side of the house of fundraising. And yeah. <laughs> this region that I will not name was like $8 million behind. And oh, they boy. had three months to close their gap. And I'm supporting them to do that. And we're having a meeting and Amari's in person in, in this region with the team. And he kicks off the meeting and I have an agenda. We have stuff to get to, okay, to, to solve this problem. And Amari asks everybody, you know, before we get to the agenda, um, I'd love to just start with like everyone's personal story of like, why are you here? Why do you do this work? They went around and answered that in typical TFA fashion, which is not quick. Um, <laughs> and I remember- Seven hours later. <laughs> well, two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes of a three hour meeting later, they finally get to me and I am panicked about like, we did not get to this agenda. And I even remember my answer was like, I'm Allie, I'm from Houston and I'm in this work because I really care about kids. And then I kept it moving. Right. But now as I think about it, does it matter? Like in the grand scheme of things, at the end of our life, does it matter that the $8 million gap got filled or not? Or does it matter that we connected with each other? Um, and I think Omari knew the answer of what mattered in life, like what matters at the end. Because um, we're not here for a very long time when you think about it. And all these, uh, like work, I think can give a lot of meaning to life, but it's like, what are we actually here for? I think about that a lot. What are we supposed to be doing on this planet? And what what is, you know, what should we be focused on? And for me, I'm so grateful that I got to work with Amari, that he was so focused on relationship and connection because, you know, I think that might be what it's all about. You know, your metrics may be hit or not, and maybe we get to work together to create connection, but this idea of perfectionism and mm. um, performance, sometimes I'm like, why are we... <laughs> you know, worried about, and sometimes I think we worry about the wrong things. Yeah. I think this quote has been attributed to Maya Angelou, and I, I think it's her quote, but it's this idea, it's something I think about when I get into, at, at the age I'm at, mm -hmm. being, turning 48 soon, my father died of a major heart attack at 52, and so one of the things I've thought about is what would end up on my tombstone, how would people talk about my legacy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And something that I feel, I think, there I say, people would say about me is like, in quoting Maya Angelou is, people will remember what you did, they remember the way you made them feel. Mm -hmm. The yeah. way you talked about Omari mm -hmm. has a lot of resonance. If I bring, I don't think I've done this on a podcast yet, but I'm bringing a spirit into this conversation mm -hmm. as being someone that I will tell the audience is deeply spiritual and sees and hears from people's souls is that, you're right, Ron, the way that people should be living, experience the world that when you understand the interconnectedness that we all have together, mm -hmm. the results never really matter. It's about being able to deepen our humanity and mm -hmm. shared mm -hmm. unity with each other. That's the gift that we have to live while we're in our bodies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If we don't understand that gift, the results happen when you understand that gift. Mm -hmm. It's not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if we over fixate, on the performance, it can lead to disconnection, right? Because we're willing to be transactional with each other 
to get mm-hmm. to the eight million dollars versus the seven and a quarter million, which well, let's be clear, like you could still hurt the result, but what does that then mean right. about like the way that then right what does that mean three or five years down the line? You can right. get a result. So you know, when I use the analogy of like how urgency can often creep up in so many mm-hmm. dangerous ways that people mm-hmm. can feel with their five senses. Right. I'll give an cl- example I see over and over again in my fitness and wellness world, mm-hmm. the urgency to lose weight, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The crash diets, all these things, mm-hmm. these unhealthy behaviors. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, our bodies, our minds, and our spirits are so dynamic that they often fight very hard by design against those kinds of extreme behaviors that yeah. even if you do get the quote unquote results on the scale, mm-hmm. your body, like to be able to keep that system and have it up yeah. by design is unsustainable. So what does our bodies often do when you lose weight that quickly? Learn. It yo-yos back yeah. and sometimes even worse, right? And mm-hmm. so I think there's so many analogies about like when you have things happen so fast, right? There's this yeah. whole idea of like, you know, expanding time horizons to get things done. And then, you know, oftentimes you get surprised that when you put less pressure on yourself on a time bound horizon, mm-hmm. that you actually get results even quicker than you mm-hmm. thought because you were yeah. enjoying the process. Right. You were engulfed in the humanity of just being mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. What if we, and what if our workplaces did that instead of the, because I think, um, when I was in business school, I got selected to be our commencement speaker. <laughs> I still want to see that video. You better. I'm going to go find it. You keep playing. I'm going to Google sweep you. Post it on the current former TFA staff members channel. Don't play. You better go find it. <laughs> I mean, it was in 2006. I think like before smartphones were a thing. So that's my... Yay. Um, but anyway, I talked about um, the art of business in my speech, which is really about like this idea of like, we get to create things. I used to tell my teams when they would be freaking about like, am I doing it right? And like everything that you're surrounded by, somebody made up like a door. Someone made that up. Someone decided mm-hmm. to like, oh, we need this thing. And they made it up or like chairs. And so when you think about that, that like someone made up, except for nature and like animals and people, like, right. but that's the material things that we use every day, someone came up with that idea and then someone built on that idea and made it even better. And so like when you think about work in that way, uh, that we get to create things together, mm. how amazing would it be if we could really live in the joy of that, of like, oh, let's see what we're going to make together um, versus being like, let's oppress and dominate each other and control and extract and all these things that a lot of our practices do. What if it could be about we're on this planet for who knows how long, some of us longer than the others, but if we're in community together, as we work together, like how do we do this in a joyful way and just like almost like play, like where could be like play if we wanted it to be? Not all work. I know like there's some, I'm privileged in that way. Like I know there's people who are working in hospitals or on battlefields or, you know, putting out fires. Like there are some things where it might not feel like a lot of joy. And perhaps those are, those people are thinking about service. I studied at the hotel school and our um, motto is life is service. The one who gives his fellow man a little more, the one who progresses is the one who gives his fellow man a little bit more, a little bit better service. 
So if not joy, perhaps it's about service, but like, how do we use our lives together to continue to add more to, you know? I want to dive on that a little bit. I know conversations we've had in the past. I don't know how many people know that about you who know you or like is you went to hotel school and you work in hotels. <laughs> I remember talking to you about like, Ron, give me all these hacks. But like, Ron, when you stay in hotels, here are all the things you really need to think about how really hotels are. Right. Mm-hmm. You just had so much. So how has that experience, what I would say and what knowing about you so censored on customer service and that mm-hmm. experience? Mm-hmm influence the way that you lead and see equity? Yeah, I see them connected because I loved hotels. When I was a little kid, my mom said she would bring (laughs) me in and I would like dance around in a nice hotel room. And Mm. I still love a nice hotel. Word, same here. What I love about it is, especially if it's nice, is how nice people treat you. Yes. And like, it's about your hum- seeing you as a fully human person. Now, yes, it's because we I have some money to spend at the hotel. I understand. But there's something about like when I fly first class and when I'm in a nice hotel, people treat mm. you like a full human who oh deserves space. Oh, my God. Word. You know what oh, I mean? Yes, and who deserves yes. care, who deserves healthy, nourishing food, who just like. And so for me, luxury isn't about indulgence. It's about caring for each other in an abundant way. And I believe that it's a huge part of liberation because when Harriet Tubman is somebody who inspires me a lot and her story, if you think about how she got to freedom, we tell the story of this like singular person going through the darkness by themselves. But, and that was somewhat true, but someone took her in as she went along her way and gave her food, gave her shelter Mm gave her a place to lay her head. And when she got to Philadelphia, they helped her find work, a place to live, establish herself. They cared for her deeply. And you need that to get to freedom, right? Like we all need to care for each other. And for me, hospitality is that. It is about caring for people in indulgent, luxurious ways. Because I just think we all deserve that, to be really cared for like we matter, you know? Yeah. It's funny, the missus and I went to Bethesda, Maryland, and I'm not getting any, you know, money for making the statement, but the missus loves staying at the Marriott brand of hotels. Mm -hmm. And my own experience of the Marriott is the Westons, because the Westons Mm -hmm. I've stayed at, Mm -hmm. you know, between their their gyms and the quality Mm -hmm. of food, I'm like, well, y'all got something here. The rest of y'all, this is Mm -hmm. uneven at best, right? And so we stayed at this, but I didn't realize this either. Apparently the Marriott headquarters, one of them is yeah. in Bethesda Marriott. I didn't know that. And it was like, yeah. and so we stayed not at the, like the Bethesda Marriott near the headquarters, mm-hmm. the one a little farther afield. Yeah. And I just remember staying there and being like, oh, this gym is nice and the food mm-hmm. is pretty good mm-hmm. and the ambiance and mm-hmm. funny story I have to tell you is, because I don't often experience these kinds of things in my own, like going around these hotels, but mm-hmm. The missus was recording a podcast mm-hmm. Saturday evening after we went down for seeing my best friend's baby's baptism. Mm-hmm. And I take the girls out in the lobby, just kind of hang out. I was like, all right, let me go get y'all some candy. Mm-hmm. So I go to the front desk staff to go buy candy. And the funny story is, you know, I'm buying it. I'm expecting to pay full price because I'm just a dude. Like no one's going to mm-hmm. give me a hookup. <laughs> what I found happening, not once, Allie, but twice. 
maybe this is her flirting with me admittedly, which I then told my wife she laughed because this does not happen to me in like kind of my experience is she said, oh, that Kit Kat, no, that's on me. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I went got to get a second Kit Kat because I wanted to because my greedy daughter, Sophia, ate the whole damn Kit Kat not right. offering me some. I went, I was like, I want some. And then I was about to pull out my car. She's like, oh no, that's on me. Thank you. I'm like, Oh, is that customer service? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, getting, I'm not getting a lot of free Kit Kat. Maybe I need to smile more, listen to that feedback. Okay. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe my tight fitting t shirt. Okay. <laughs> I'm not getting any free chocolate over here. But, but nonetheless, <laughs> like that experience of like, oh, you're doing this thing for me because yeah. it's just a way of like, Oh, I would saw my kids because they were being Sophie and Abe and just running around. It's like, oh no, we, you know. And so I don't know what it was, but like from a customer service standpoint, yeah. it's just like that kind of like these small little things. Like the next time we go down there, def- definitely gonna stay there again, right? These yeah. kinds of things, the way that you are cared for, mm-hmm. the experience you have, the smell, yeah. the, all that stuff, all like that's just um, smells. Like Westons have a distinct smell. Yes. My first job actually out of college was with Marriott. I worked at the Philadelphia Marriott at 13th and Market. Look at that. (laughs) Yeah. So, and I'm a loyal Bonvoy consumer. I will go out Mm. of my way to stay in a Marriott property. Mm. But I just think like when we, I got to go to Greece um, for my birthday and we stayed in this hotel that I would say, um, I think it's one of their autographs, which are nicer, but like not the super, super nice ones, but you know, nice boutique kind of hotel. Yes. And it was like the best service I've ever experienced. They anticipated everything. And even at breakfast, I think they were eavesdropping. So I remember it was like, hot we couldn't completely control the temperature in our room it was a little warm and we were talking about oh it was a little warm do you know they went and fixed the range of the temperature without me asking and that's the type of thing that it's like what yeah and they had different types of pillows and all these different things and it was just like they were so they're like what is it that you need to feel fully human if it's a temperature if it's a pillow if it's whatever we got you oh, you need, you know, cold medicine. This is where you can go get it or whatever. They just were so attentive and so, and they're a brand new property too. But like, I mm. I just really appreciated how it weirded me out a little bit. Because <laughs> I'm like, uh, I'm not used to that. But I just really appreciate people that pay attention and try and meet you with whatever it is that you need so that you can thrive, you know, and rest even on vacation. (laughs) And going back to what you said earlier, if you don't have folks, I imagine those folks who provided that level of service to Mm -hmm. you, they were slowing down enough to listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Building a value of like, Mm -hmm. we want to do what is unasked to be Mm -hmm. able to provide this incredible experience for you all. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what we ask of the organizations we work with? Yeah. Their equity work is to provide an unparalleled service and culture where people get what they need without yeah. having to ask. Right. Yeah. Isn't that, why yeah. do we always have to, is it because asking the nature of having to constantly ask and advocate is mm-hmm. exhausting. Yeah. 
And what's interesting is like sometimes companies will be willing to do it for their customers, right? So like at my last Mm. organization before I founded the equity practice, we had this thing called level of care, which is about this, which is like anticipating learners' needs, whether including like you never have to think about having a pen or a piece of paper or even candy, like everything. You shouldn't have to think about anything. You're just here to like learn. Because like all like having to remember all this stuff actually keeps you from learning. And so what I tried to do as a person in charge of our talent work was like, how do I provide level of care for staff as well? And so like when we moved to a new office, I built it out. You know, I was it wasn't it we still save money because it's still a nonprofit, but like I tried to think about taking care of people abundantly, which is so different than the nonprofit sector. Normally it's about scarcity. Mm -hmm. But I think when you treat your team abundantly, then they're more likely to be able to focus on taking care of your customers or your clients or your participants. And so it's like, how do we create a world where we're all just providing abundant care to each other? And it's like a reciprocal thing where we're taken care of and we take care of each other. And it's just... It's just like a much better place to be in when you know people want to take care of you, I think. Sounds like a good point, Allie, to ask you what your rondering is. Yeah, I mean, it's related to this. I think like I've been struck recently how resistant people are to the idea of having a relationship at work. Uh, people will be like, I don't have relationships at work. I don't want relationships at work. I don't mm. want to which I know you're probably like, what? I get what you're saying. I yeah. Do. A lot of people are very resistant to the idea. And so the thing I'm thinking about is why, and it's, be- I think people are scared of being vulnerable. Like what if, you know, when dogs, if you've ever had a dog, they, um, they show you their belly to get a belly oh, yeah. rub, oh, you know? yes, yes. That's the most vulnerable thing a dog you can do exactly, for Exactly, because they want mm-hmm. the belly rub. They want the connection. They want to be part of your group, right? So they're willing to be vulnerable in a way that where you could literally kill them to get that connection. And so if we want that connection, if we want that abundant care, we have to risk the vulnerability of being in relationship with the people we work with. And and I'm not talking about, you know, you don't have to go to the bar. I know like a lot of people think that means I have to hang out mm-hmm. and be best friends with people. That's not what I'm talking about. How do you work in a way that is reciprocal where I am accountable for the environment I create for you? Because we create each other's environment in the ways that we behave and act at work. And how can I be in a relationship where I'm invested and in you being able to exist in a liberatory way. So I'm willing to change my behavior, provide care for you, share power with you. I think you have to be invested in a relationship to do that. So I love that investment in relationships as the rondering, right? Because it's something that I think folks in their fight for results often forget. And this goes back to something I learned in facilitative leadership training mm-hmm. way back in the day when I was at New Leaders is the RPR triangle around facilitative leadership, Mm -hmm. results, process, and relationships. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've learned, many of the education organizations, Allie, that you and I worked at, Mm -hmm. were big on the other R Mm -hmm. and P, the process. Mm -hmm. Relationships were 
a byproduct at mm-hmm. best, mm-hmm. right? And so I know in all these organizations I've worked at, right, you know, you stick out when you experience the world and experience work through building relationships and trust first, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And I think folks have a really hard time grappling, wait, you don't have a project plan? Mm. Wait, what's your agenda? Mm-hmm. And you can do all those things. I'm not saying I don't want to poo-poo on a strategic right. plan or project plan or an agenda because they're important for structure mm-hmm. because structure is also good for relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, bringing Omari back into the space and his spiritual brilliance in his time on earth mm-hmm. is when you center relationships with people, that in itself creates the space for people's brilliance to come mm-hmm. out. Yeah. And probably close that $8 million gap without having to go through that agenda. It's about mm-hmm. how do you Absolutely. shift the space and the energy of people so that then they're doing the work. It doesn't have to be you facilitating. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what I interpret, right? Like yeah. younger Allie in that conversation was thinking about, we have to meet this gap. Right. I'm facilitating. You're going to tell me what needs, but I, I am putting the structure on the ship. Mm-hmm. And then Amari's like, no. We need to hear from each other and create a space because that space and understanding will then tie into mm-hmm. how do we collectively all get towards closing this eight million dollar gap? Mm-hmm. Right. It's um, mm-hmm. it's a different orientation. I would argue any sustainable thing that we as a collective of people do, whether it's informal or formal, mm-hmm. is based on understanding how to build our collective energy, which in fact is already there. It's just building the consciousness that it already exists, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Because when we do that, then like, then we are doing equity work. You can yeah. call it whatever the hell you want. Yeah. And when you're able to do that, that's where the magic happens. Absolutely. And this is why we need to read your book that's coming out. Oh yeah, leverage the people who <laughs> care about you personally, professionally. Shout out to my Amazon <laughs> I Boom. can't wait for it to land on my doorstep. I'm waiting. Oh, I, I can't wait to hear what you think about and all the amazing people that I write about in it. Yes. So, Ali, before we go, is there anything that you want to elevate, shout out about you or your work for our audience? Yeah. So we're doing some cool experiments this summer um, to help folks learn a little bit about how we think about liberatory principles and mm-hmm. how you can sort of slow down and see these patterns of oppression and then what are some alternatives. So definitely check out um, our website, sign up for a newsletter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm trying to be more present on LinkedIn. It's a little personal goal I set for 2023. So follow me on LinkedIn. I'm trying to share more about some of the ideas that we have about the world. So, and if folks are want to collaborate or would love support to think about how do you provide care and restoration at work, we'd love to have that conversation with people. So, And what's your website again, Allie? It's www.theequitypractice.com. Beautiful. Thank you. Folks, you should reach out to Allie and her team. There's so much wisdom, you know, understanding of how to build shared experiences and a deep care for people's humanity that um you just talk to Allie and her team. Just thank have a good you. conversation and then um I'm sure there'll be synergies to the work. So Allie, thank you so much for being a guest on Ronderings. Thanks um, for having me. This has been a treat. I didn't know that's where where we would go. I never know by design where we're gonna <laughs> go. And yet where we went just felt felt right because we built trust. Yeah. And we shared. Absolutely. I love that. Me too. Thanks for going on the journey with me. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you for going on the journey with me <laughs> and this crazy thing that I built called the Ronderings Podcast. Yes. So, Ronderings fan, over and out. See y'all later. Peace. Thank you for listening to Ali's Wisdom. There's something that we riffed on at the end that I wanted to elevate for y'all, which is the idea that doing equity work that many of our many clients are programmed to be resistant to having relationships with people at work beyond what's deemed the professional. I got to tell you, it, you know, when Ali and I talked about it, you almost, you know, raised an eyebrow because in, in our lived experiences, her as a black woman, I as a Filipino American, getting to know people is how you build trust. You can't get folks to do work together without trust, right? And so that just, I, I got to say that bugged me out, but I totally understand why that is, right? Especially in systems of white supremacy, why not having relationships at work seems to make sense, right? Because you're supposed to separate those things, but it's hard to separate those things. So fam, appreciate y'all listening. Come check out our next episode. Peace.